And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro. That's Scott Gardner. Hello. How, how you doing? I'm doing all right. <laughs> so before we signed, before we started the show, Scott and I were just talking about. Uh, the possibility slash likelihood that we will be attending Tampa Bay Comic Con. I would Woo-hoo. I would like Tampa Bay Comic Con to be inviting us to attend because we're such prominent yeah. podcasters. Right. Have you have you uh have you ever yeah. tried to apply for a press pass for them? I have not. You know, now that you say that, I I have not. I wonder. I'm looking at their website right now. I wonder if there's any. Uh... There is. There is a page to apply. Uh, so maybe we yeah. should. Maybe should we should coordinate our efforts and do the back to the bins application because it does actually have something where you you would have multiple people potentially. Right. You know, if you have one media outlet, so we'd be looking for three. That's not a bad idea, because I mean, Bill and I went last year, and we released an episode about it. So, yeah. yeah so we'd be able to to put in the application that we that we have covered it in the past, and here's a link to that coverage. So I think that's you know it's worth a shot. The worst that could happen is they say yeah. no, and then we buy tickets. Yep, exactly, exactly. But we've been we've yeah, been itching we to went... hit a comic con together. Because we haven't done it now in probably six years since the it's last time we did. Yeah. yeah, when was uh, when was Eternal Con? That was actually that was quite I, I a think that might have been 2015. Yeah, that's what so, I was thinking. So that's eight years ago. Wow. Yeah. Time Woo. does fly. Yeah, because the I second know, year that right? you guys came up, we didn't actually go to Eternal Con. We we went to the city That's and right. did the Empire State Building and those things and we we had a jolly old time together but we didn't actually hit the con. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at my folder for uh, for the comics I got signed. It was it was 2015 Eternal Con, yeah, because I got a bunch of stuff signed by uh, by Rich Buckler amongst others. But yeah, time does fly. Woo. So yeah, so that uh, I'm I'm looking forward to that very much hopefully that does work out and we can do it i would uh i would love to be able to put together some sort of uh freak fest of some kind you know either large or small because uh, you know i've been asked about it a lot lately surprisingly it's come up in conversation you know with with people that either you know have gotten together with us at, at you know different things we tried to put together before in the past or wanted to 
and we're wondering, you know, hey, when are you guys going to do another, you know, freak gathering? And so this this is an opportunity. And it's the perfect location to do it at. We do it at a con. We can spend as much time together. You know, we, we before we started recording again, we started talking about which day we would do because it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, right now, my inclination is to lean towards Friday, but that's TBD. Um, you know, right. we talk and, and you, you said it, it, what does it start at like noon? What, what'd you say? Ted? Uh, yeah. On, on Friday, um, it looked like, I'm sorry, I moved away from the page here. It looked like the, the uh, convention floor would actually open up, uh, you know, as general admission at 1230 and run till seven, which might, That's might Friday. actually be the perfect opportunity for a good freak fest thing because we could actually plan to get together earlier you know have a little interaction right. with each other before we start getting you know caught up in con activities and separated from each other yeah we could you know say you yeah, say we like meet that. at ten thirty and we have two hours to hang out together and maybe you know maybe we all yeah. grab breakfast together or something and then we yeah, go from there to the con yeah i like that idea yeah um for the listeners this is uh uh, Tampa Bay Comic Con. It's it's actually in Tampa at the uh, Tampa Bay Convention Center, and the dates on this are um, Friday, July 28th through Sunday, July 30th um, this year, 2023. I'm gonna start saving up my so, money yeah. now. Because um, lately yeah, you've inspired happens? me to be a comic buying fool. Oh, I'm telling you, I've I've been ridiculous. Oh, those are VIP. I don't want that. That's a VIP pass. What is? Uh, on a quick glance, I'm not seeing just the just the one day, but I'm sure. Yeah, these are all weekend passes I'm looking at. But I, I oh wait, here we go. Day passes. Uh, between thirty and forty bucks. So yeah, not bad. That's doable. That is doable. But first, I will try and get them to give us freebies. <laughs> Because <laughs> that's thirty or forty bucks more than I could spend on comic books. Oh, you know what? They're, they're offering photo ops. We should offer photo ops. Yeah. <laughs> who, who would be foolish enough to want a photo with us? <laughs> Did you see my recent uh, photo op with William Shatner? Uh, I want to say yes. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I posted it on Facebook. It's it's a strange thing now. I mean, he's 91 years old. So, you know, with the COVID situation and all, uh, when you go in for the photo op, they actually have a thin piece of plexiglass between you and him. Yes. Yes, uh, I did see that. So so I, I took that and I, I, I cut us out of the photo and then I, I photoshopped us onto the uh, bridge of the Enterprise instead. <laughs> but but realistically, I don't know who it was that suggested it to me. It might have been Dr. Bill. I'm not sure. But he said with the plexiglass, I should have acted like Spock uh, in, in Wrath of Khan. Right. I was just going to ask you about if you did that. I did not. <laughs> he I probably did. got a lot of that, I would imagine. I would imagine he does. But, you know, he, he he's pretty, from what I saw, I mean, they, they rush you in and out. But from what I saw, he's pretty good spirited. Uh, and has a pretty good sense of humor about things like that. So he would probably make it look like he hadn't heard it before or seen it before. <laughs> that is cool, though. So I guess the message to our listeners slash friends is if you're interested in going to Tampa Bay Comic Con, try and 
try and firm up that interest a little bit and let us know and you know we'll see what happens and how we're able to to make plans for you know for a cool cool comic-con day together yeah exactly i mean yeah. you know like you never know somebody maybe wants to meet us and buy us comic books <laughs> i could use that copy of action comics number one <laughs> uh anyway uh, i'm trying to remember is, is that that is the convention that bill and i went yeah to you guys went year, last right? year and I'm... you you were texting me the night before to try and get me to grab a flight down there <laughs> which actually as foolish as that sounds when i say it that way you guys were saying it and my wife was saying why don't you so it's not as if it's as you know outlandish as as I'm making it sound. It just you see know, why didn't you? I don't know. I don't like you. Uh, I get that sense. <laughs> I mean, really, let's be <laughs> let's be fair. Because you smell. Um, yeah, but no, I would. I I would. This would be cool. I've been itching to get together with uh, and reconnect with people and that sort of thing. So that would be cool. I, I feel like, I mean, maybe this is just me and because I live in Florida and, you know, everything. But I, I feel like we're finally past this damn COVID thing. And it, it's time to start reconnecting with people before, you know, before we lose touch type of thing. So this this would be a cool opportunity to do that. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, again, it's been eight years since we did eternal con seven years since the last time we had a big freak get together i mean you and i and bill and i and you i and bill uh you know we've all gotten together and and we've gotten together with some of the other guys matt and al sedano and shag you know we, we've done that over the last few years actually we haven't done it since covid right well last year i i last year i i made it down to florida around christmas time and for some reason, I, you know, your work schedule didn't let you get together with us. But I did end up spending a day with uh, Dr. Bill. But, yeah. Other than you and the doc, I mean, I think Rifen's the only one I've seen face to face since this whole damn COVID thing started. So, yeah, it'd, it'd be nice to, like I said, get together with some folks. And Scott is one of the people who I would hope might make an effort to, to come over and go to the con because to this day, Scott's one of the people who I think very highly of but have never met face to face. See, I always forget that. For some reason, I, I'm always mentally placing him at the barbecue at your house. But I no, guess it's just because... That's just because he makes fun of us for calling it a barbecue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, but for some reason, I always mentally picture him there. But I, yeah, he wasn't actually there. But that's just funny. Well, you know, that, that, I, I guess the, the first one, Just Ron, was there. So maybe that's why... Right. Maybe, you know, right. maybe, maybe since there was a Dinner for Geeks presence, maybe that's why you... Uh, in your mind, you've you've you know related it to Scott. What's he up to? I haven't heard from him in ages. Uh, I know recently. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but there was a recent Dinner for Geeks episode that I've been meaning to listen to. Uh, that right. the four of them managed to get together and, and hang out. So I figure that's where I'll get my update on where everybody except for Scott's been, because Scott I've been in contact with. I saw that drop and then totally forgot to go back and listen to it. I think at the time I assumed it was just one of the lost episodes, but if it is truly new content, that yeah, I, I need to I need to listen to that. No, it definitely said it was new. I content. love that show and I like these guys. Yeah, same here. Cool. Cool, cool. So uh, let's look at a book. 
I mean, yeah. just talking about getting together is all well and good, but people tune into us for our great insight into the process of making comic books. <laughs> they don't? Fools! <laughs> okay. Well, as, as has been my want of late, uh, I, I have been buying more comics recently, and I've kind of brought it up a level. I'm still not spending big, you know, bucks on stuff. But I've been spending a little bit more to get some more key issues when I can find them at a good price. And I recently bought first issue special number eight, which is the first appearance of the Warlord. Or just Warlord. No, it is the Warlord, excuse me. War, yeah, the Warlord, yeah. And uh, I think I bought it for about $12, which I, I believe is almost a steal. And uh, I had once owned this book. I know I owned it. When it first came out in 1975, I know I bought this off the, the newsstand. And at that point, <clears throat> I would have been just 13 years old. <clears throat> and honestly, I was not into sword and sorcery stuff back then. And I don't even remember. I, like, I remember paging through it, but I didn't remember not being so crazy about it back then. And why it's not still part of my collection is probably related to the fact that I wasn't so crazy about it back then. Uh but now I wanted it again, and I'm not overly familiar with Warlord. I know you have a significant run. I remember picking up some for you at the comic book store at one time off your want list. Uh, but my familiarity with the character is kind of this issue and when he was on Justice League Unlimited. And just otherwise seeing, you know, right. seeing, you know, artwork from it. But I, I have a very, very limited familiarity with this character. What what was I mean other than the fact that Mike Grell's art is always gorgeous, uh, what was the factor that made you put this issue on your want list? Uh, a couple of things. So um, first, you know, first and foremost, of course, Mike Grell. I'm a Mike Grell mark. I, I love the guy. I have ever since, uh, you know, uh, his early stuff with you know Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes and. It took me a long, 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 long time to track down, but I, I used to have this memory in my head, this image in my head of Robin running like on a football field or something that in my mind was drawn by Mike Grell, but it was just like the fuzziest of memories. And I ended up eventually tracking the issue down, and it turned out that it's the very earliest comic I can ever remember reading as a child. It was Detective Comics. I think it's issue 445. There was a backup story in there called uh, – it was something like Robin's Touchdown something or other where he fights some bad guys on a football field. This is during his college days, and it was uh, an early story illustrated by Mike Grell. So I've always been a mark for the guy. Now, somewhere, and I have no idea when or how or what, it was probably some large collection I bought somewhere. Somewhere I wound up with a with a Warlord number one that I've had for, I mean, as long as I can remember. And I don't think I ever actually read it. I just kind of hung on to it simply because it was a Mike Grell. But I, like you, I'm not into sword and sorcery stuff, so I really wasn't interested in the book beyond the fact that it was you know drawn by one of my favorite people. Uh, artists so fast forward to relatively recently this was within the past few years um i've started giving in more and more to when i'm out somewhere and you know when i come across the cheap bins and there's like 
a, a bulk of a series. Like if I keep seeing the same uh, series with like multiple issues at different bins around, I've started picking them up with the intent of, eh, maybe I'll be able to actually piece together this collection because I keep running across issues of it. And one of the most prominent ones um, that just seemed to keep coming up all the time was Warlord. It's like every 50 cent box or whatever I ever looked through seems to have Warlord in it. So I was like, what the hell? I've already got a number one. Why don't I start picking these up and see if I could, you know, just for fun, just for shits and giggles, see if I could actually put together the whole series. I had done that with Rom the Space Knight. I put together the whole series, never paid more than a dollar for any single issue, including number one, which I have multiples of. So I was at this one shop, and I think it was uh, I think it was Mike's Comics here in, in Orlando, but I'm not positive. I was at a shop one day, and they had less than 50 cent bins. I forget wow. what they wore. They were like 10 cents or 25 cents, something like that, and just a ton of Warlord in there. So that got me started. I, I bought like a serious chunk of Warlord out of there, and all, it also got me started on like Arion and Arak and a couple other series. So then it became okay. Now I've now I've officially started. And like I say, what really helped was I already I already had number one, which I figured you know unless there was an issue in there that I wasn't aware had value, I figured that was <laughs> that going to be the hardest one to get. <laughs> Every yeah, yeah, every series I go to get, too. then it's like, oh, issue eight is the first appearance of Dimwit Jones. Yeah, exactly. That just happened to me recently. I've been, uh, I was, I did, I started doing the same thing with um, um, John Ostrander and uh, uh, Tom Mandrake's uh, Spectre series. I think it's volume three of the Spectre from the 2000s. Right. I kept seeing it for cheap so i was like all right i'll pick it up what the hell i, I kind of like you know i really like tom mandrake i really like john ostrander i think that's the writer on that one and i kind of like the spectrum i was like all right i'll pick it up i keep finding him cheap uh it turns out i'm two issues away but the two issues i need one of which is the first appearance of mr terrific i'm like yeah great i'm never gonna own that so but anyway um I started tracking down these warlords, eventually did put together the entire series. And, and again, thank you for your help with that. And, and, and I can so just, I, you know, before I sound too magnanimous, I think everything I got for you was probably on the 50 cents level also. Yeah. The only issue um, I ever paid anything. And I, and I say significant in air quotes, cause you know me, I'm a cheap son of a bitch was this one because I figured if I'm going to get the whole series, well, he only really has one significant appearance outside of his own series, that being his first appearance in first issue special. So I started watching it on, I don't know, eBay or something. And I eventually did snag one. I just checked my records. Unfortunately, I did not put down um, how much I paid for it, but I'm thinking I got it for under six bucks because nice. that's six bucks is usually my tolerance. <laughs> and I know that sounds really, really cheap, but yes, that's me. I'm just really cheap. Um, so I, that's the only one I paid more than a dollar for every other issue. And there's like 130 issues plus annuals of this series. Never paid more than a buck for any of them. So it can be done. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't know if I'm going to fall down this particular rabbit hole. I think I, 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 having read this issue for the sake of today's podcast, I did find it kind of engaging. Uh, and we'll get into that more as we go through it. But, uh, I think if I, decide to follow up i'm going to do so digitally i don't think i'm going to purchase right i, yeah. I would kind of encourage that because um so spoiler 
I've read beyond this point. I couldn't tell you the exact issue I'm at just because I don't have my other iPad up here at the moment. But um, as you may or may not know, I think I mentioned this before. I, I'm on a read through, and and this is a very slow project. It's it's just like whenever whenever I remember to get to it, I get to it type of thing. But I'm slowly intent on reading every single DC Comics title regardless of genre published between the first appearance of the monitor pre-crisis you know the first teaser right through the crisis and it's taking me much longer than I ever figured it would so as I'm doing that there's a couple of titles that of course are already in progress so to speak um and Warlord was one of them. And I didn't originally intend to do this. I just wanted to kind of pick it up where it starts some, somewhere in 1982. But there was a couple of titles I was so intrigued by or I was so lost by, like I had no idea what the hell was going on, that I decided to go all the way back to the first issues of those series to read myself up to you know those current issues with 1982. And Warlord was one of them I decided to do that for one, because I found it very intriguing for two, I was a little bit lost. And it's like certain characters. I, I couldn't figure out like, okay, what's going on? What's the relationship type of thing. But also it was like, I, I went through all the trouble to buy this friggin' series. If I'm going to start reading it, why would I start in the middle? Why don't I just go ahead and read the whole thing? So I am significantly past this point. I'm at least a couple of years in, I forget the exact issue I'm at. It's it's good. I mean, it's not great, but then again, this isn't my genre. Um, but it is engaging. That you know, the characters are interesting, the world is interesting, and you know, we can talk more about that later. But I would encourage you. I mean, if if this first issue intrigued you to yeah, you know, try it beyond this point because it, it is interesting. Yeah, I, I will. It's it's probably like yourself. I'm finding I have precious little comic book reading time, unfortunately. Uh, Right. You know, I, I, and I, I still love reading them, but, you know, between work and then family obligations and things. And then, you know, we have certain books we read for the show and I have certain movies I watch for my other show. And, you know, I do have to spend some time with my wife. You know, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> just part of life. And then, you know, I find a lot of times by the time I can actually sit down with my iPad or if I could sit down and crack open an issue, I'm tired. <laughs> and, then I, and, right. and the older I get, the more reading makes me sleepy. So, you know, it, it's not yep. easy. Uh, but I, I definitely think I'm going to put this on my my to read list, and and you know I'll I'll probably just you know kind of like rotate this in with the other series that I'm reading, uh, and then see how long you know how long it goes for me because I did find it interesting and I, I'm also a good mark for Mike Rell. Mike Rell, and I don't want to insult his work by comparing it too closely to somebody else where I'm making it sound almost derivative, but to compare it to Neil Adams, which is what I'm going to do. Uh, I mean, it's, it's hardly an insult. Uh, you know, one of the all time greats, but Mike Grell's facial images remind me greatly of Neil Adams work. Mm -hmm. And, and again, that's meant to be an, you know, a, 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 Tremendous compliment because, uh, you know, we've talked about what we think of Neil Adams's work. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I've mentioned to our friends, uh, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, who are actually friendly with Mike Rell. Uh, and I said something about, well, you know, you guys got to introduce me to him if we ever forever at a con together. And they were like, oh, absolutely. No problem. Because they, they actually know him fairly well. 
uh, and they've done a podcast, uh, you know, with That's his work. Cool. So I would love to meet him and, and, you know, just tell him how much I enjoy his stuff. Uh, but you know, I would, I would be thrilled to meet him. He'd be, he'd actually be one where I would be a little bit intimidated to meet him only because I mean, such, such a huge part of my childhood. I mean, his era of Superboy and Legion of Superheroes. I mean, that, that is my childhood distilled, you know what I mean? Mm. So yeah, it would it would really be a thrill, but I'd I'd probably be like that SNL skit, you know. <laughs> well, that's that's the way I was when I met Neil Adams, but he was he was actually, and we've talked about this in the past, but he was actually so welcoming and engaging and, and willing to talk uh, that he put me at ease pretty quickly. And that's I cool. get the feeling from talking to Ruth and Darren that Mike Grell might be of a similar uh, ilk. He seems like a super nice guy. I mean, every interview I've ever read with him or about him, I mean, he's not one of those guys I've ever read any story where somebody was like, yeah, that girl was a son of a, you know, nothing like that. You know, everybody's always like, you know, the nicest guy, easy to work with. He's, he just seems like a really uh, sweet person, you know, really nice guy. That's the impression so, yeah, I get as well. Yeah. So. Uh, I'm going to read the uh, synopsis off the DC wiki, and then we're going to do a page-by-page breakdown on this one. Uh, So this is one of our spotlight episodes. Uh, So this this issue has a cover date of, where is it now? I lost it. November November of 1975. And the story is written by Mike Grell, penciled by Mike Grell inked by Mike Grell, edited by Joe Orlando. And I always feel like Bugs Bunny, Bugs Bunny, Bugs Bunny. Uh, (laughs) So the cover shows the warlord in his full regalia with his beard, the whole deal, uh, fighting a dinosaur with a warrior woman coming up from behind with a sword. Really a nice poster image. Uh, and it's first issue special. It's not actually the Warlord, but just to, by way of commentary already, uh, the end of the issue actually says coming Warlord number one. So this was not really a tryout so much as a let's just put the first issue here for some reason. I'm not sure right. exactly why. Right. But the synopsis is as follows. Lieutenant Colonel Travis Morgan of the United States Air Force is attacked while on a reconnaissance mission over Russia. Fleeing towards the Atlantic Circle, he is forced to abandon his dying aircraft in Yukon Territory and parachutes through a swirling mist into the strange and unrecognizable land of Scartarus. While wandering through the unfamiliar forest, he happens upon a beautiful barbarian girl, Tara, who is being attacked by a dinosaur and rescues her. He questions her about the surroundings but finds she speaks a strange language. They are interrupted by a group of armored warriors who attack them as well, but when Travis shoots two of them, they are afraid of his technology and instead offer to take them to their king at his palace in Thera. Morgan and Tara are introduced to the king as well as his high priestess, Demos, who feels threatened by the foreigner. Demos tests him with an attack from a magical orb, but Morgan simply shoots it out of his hand. He is bathed and clothed, and a feast is prepared in his honor, although Tara clearly disapproves of the civilization pampering them. When Travis goes into a deep sleep, he awakes with a large beard and realizes time has little meaning in this strange land. Over a period of time, 
Morgan learns the language of the local people and begins to learn from Tara. She explains to him how, although she seems less cultured than the people around them, her people took look down on them for atrocities committed in the name of human sacrifices to their god. Morgan theorizes that the particular peculiar details of Scarterus can be explained by it existing inside of the earth itself, which is how he fell into it. A spy overhears them and reports back to Demos. He sends trained killers to murder Travis and Tara in their sleep, but Travis, lying in ambush, surprises them, and the two are able to slay the mercenaries together. Realizing they're no longer safe in Thera, Tara decides to take Travis back to her own people, and the two leave the city to strike out on their own. So that's the synopsis of it, but now we'll get into the actual story, or the actual issue. And I suspect that the story is what it is, and that we're going to mostly be commenting on the art. Because <laughs> as, as you've probably picked up, we're both big fans of this art. So absolutely. Again, I already described the cover, but the inside splash page is kind of a play on that same cover because it has more Travis Morgan in his, uh, you know, his Air Force uh, costume, but ripped to shreds. He doesn't have a beard yet. He's not in the war, warlord attire yet, but he's fighting the same dinosaur. Uh, and then Tara, who is leaping at the dinosaur on the cover with her sword, is down on the ground as the damsel in distress but it's a nice cool transition from the first page you know from the cover to the first page i i honestly like the splash better um than the than the cover on this i like most everything about the co the cover except tara looks really bizarre and i think it's because of her costume the coloring and everything um because it's just a two-dimensional image, it's it's tough to see the exact position her body is in with the way her clothing is, is wearing on her. But on a quick glance, she just looks deformed or something. She looks like she has, like, one huge leg and then, like, <laughs> one tiny little leg. Well, now, she's supposed uh, to be, like, leaping from a tree and her, her uh, what would that be, her left leg is, is like, bent or cocked. Yeah, she's kind of push, pushing off it, with her left leg. Yeah, but it just doesn't quite play right visually, and so she just looks freakish. Um, so yeah, that that's really my only criticism with that. What's really neat is I, I had a cool catch today. I, I was looking through um, Grell's history because I was trying to remember where exactly this falls um, in his timeline. And if you look at the cover of Superboy and the Legion number, what was that, two... I think it's 213. Um, there's a like a space going dinosaur that's attacking a Legion cruiser on that cover that looks just like this dinosaur right here. It's really cool. Which, which issue number is that? Kind of I, I think it's Superboy number 213, if I remember right. I know I, I thought I made a note of it here, but I'm not seeing it. Yeah, here it is. Yeah, Superboy 213, which was out the next month after this. I know. Punching that cover up as we speak, and oh yeah, okay, uh, but a very very different perspective on the dinosaur, <laughs> at least on the cover. I don't remember ever reading that one. Anyway, back to Warlord. Uh, so then we we go right from there to uh, you know the flashback to 
him on the reconnaissance mission that we, you know, we heard about in the synopsis. Uh, and, and, you know, this, this is a non-superhero, non-barbarian, just, you know, Air Force page. Uh, and it's gorgeous. I, 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 I tell you, I just love my, my girl's heart. And so I'm going to just say it so many times. Uh, if you, you know, when, one of the things I like about it is it's not a traditional grid. And it's funny because some people seem to like the traditional grid much more and don't like when people vary off of it. I'm, I'm a big fan of when people vary off it for a purpose. I, right. I don't want to see them vary just for the sake of varying. But when they when they're actually using something storytelling wise to do it, uh, to make it seem more cinematic or to make it seem more dynamic, that's when I enjoy it. And people like Neil Adams and, and Mike Grell and uh, you know I, I'm sure plenty of others that I'm, I'm failing to mention right now do that often. Uh, but in this instance, he has the main images and then he's got very small insets, which is showing you the activity that's going on away from the main images. Uh, so it almost feels like a movie where you just, you know, you have your hero and then you just keep flashing to these other things that are going on. So I, I, I like right. that from a storytelling perspective. And then he continues that on to the next page. And then even in the second panel uh, or the third panel, if you count the inset, uh, he's got the ship making a quick turn and the nose of it is actually, you know, encroaching on the border and slightly, uh, you know, coming up to the, uh, excuse me, to the panel next to it. So I, I, I liked little I like, touches like that. I liked that there was actually an explanation given for why he doesn't have a co-pilot, because he says normally he would have uh, his, uh, he's his electronics officer, but because there was so much gear, um, you know, spy gear packed into this ship that there basically wasn't room for anyone else. So I thought that was nice. That was a nice touch to, you know, to explain that away. Yeah. Well, I mean, I got to think that there's something going on here that we may or may not learn about once, you know, once he gets to Skateris. I don't know if there's going to be, if we're going to have much flashing back to, uh, you know, mainland Earth. Uh but you got to think there's something going, you know, where he's almost being set up to fail somehow or or they're sending him out on a mission where, you know, yeah, we don't think he's going to come back, but let's try something along those lines. Because this does not seem like a, a simple reconnaissance mission, which is kind of what he's told that it is. Well, I was wondering, why did they do this as a flashback? Because... You know, the, it, it gives an actual date. It says the story begins June 16th, 1969. And I, I was wondering what the significance of that is. You know, that's that's six years before this, you know, before the, the book was actually published. I think the significance so, is that they, you know, when he grew, when he wakes up and he's got the long hair and the beard, it, you know, he comes to the conclusion that time is different here. Right. So while he's only been you know, living in, in this, you know, inner earth uh, for whatever, a, a week or something like that, six years of, of mainland earth time has gone by. Oh, that's that's okay. the way I'm seeing it. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, that could, it could very well be. I know that later in the series, it, it, st it continues kind of off and on with that time wonkiness thing. And that's the impression I'm getting just from this one issue, again, because I haven't read any others, that, that, the time is totally wonky and that it might there might be points when it slows down there might be points when it speeds up there might be points right. when you're going into something and you're actually going backwards in time i i you know i'm i'm getting the feeling that that it's almost like uh 
you know, like, like in Star Trek Generations when they go into the Nexus. Right. Well, it this this thing is neat because it, it really plays. I, I felt like Grell did a really good job because unlike say, um, say like Lord of the Rings where you know they use the term Middle Earth and all that, I've often wondered is it truly supposed to be within the Earth or is it like a lost epoch of you know of, of our Earth, you know, like the surface Earth? I, I never could quite figure that out. With this, um, at, at least at this point, it truly is supposed to be the center of the Earth. So everything works differently. You know, the, the sun in there is, is not our sun that we see in our sky. It's actually an internal uh, heat and light source within the planet itself. There is no horizon because you're inside of a sphere. So essentially the world is all around you. But, it's, of course, it's so large that, you know, eventually he can't see past a point. But, you know, there's some really interesting, um, you know, visuals that, that they show. That, you know, so everything's, you know, odd and, and, and different about this world. And that was kind of the hook for me was learning about because I'm always a, a real sucker for these types of stories. You know, the the hollow earth, you know, the inner world type mm -hmm. of thing. I don't know. I, I just I find the whole concept really interesting. You know, so when it's done really well and I felt like Grell really pulls a lot of different elements from a lot of different lore um, of this sort of, you know, lost world, inner earth type of thing. So there's a little bit of, you know, the the sword and the sorcery and the and Lord of the Rings and a little bit of, you know, like Burroughs Lost World and, you know, that sort of thing right. with the dinosaurs. So it's, it's pulling a lot of different elements from a lot of different places. Now, it, it's interesting in my mind to, to try and think uh you know he he you know the, the next thing is he parachutes down and he, he's he lands in the jungle and then uh he notices that the sun overhead seems larger and and then you know it's, it's bright orange which is obviously different uh and he says you know what happened to the horizon and i'm trying to picture in my mind what you would actually see because I'm still thinking, even even with the hollow earth theory, uh, like you said, some things are just so far away that you just wouldn't see them. You know, you're not you wouldn't look straight up and see the other side of the earth. Right. It's too right. far away. But wouldn't your vision only take you to a certain point if you're looking straight ahead so that you would still have a horizon? Well, it, it, it sort of addresses that on, uh, what would this be, page six, the title page, because it says, indeed, there is no horizon. Travis Morgan's astonished eyes gaze out upon an incredible panorama of lush forest curving gradually upward and upward as far as uh, the eye can see until rivers and jungles and mountains hang like a tapestry in the distance and climb slowly out of sight uh, in the uh, swirling mist. So I'm thinking that it's it's basically like the reverse of how we how we see the earth you know i mean of course we can clearly see a horizon so i guess that would be a little bit different but i mean you know at, eventually the the distance becomes so great as, you know as that curves upward that i think it just kind of fades out and then i guess you're just seeing sky yeah or that's what i'm thinking i'm thinking it would still appear yeah. to the human eye to be a horizon even though it's not. Yeah, that's true. 
because eventually it would just fade out of view on you. I, I think it would be it would be a thing where it, it would truly fade, though. There wouldn't be like a delineating line. You know what I mean? Yes, yes true. Like like you you'd never be able to truly discern like where it where you're not seeing it anymore because it would be such a slow fade to eventually you know you you just you see nothing but whatever the color of their skies i i'm assuming blue i don't know but which i would i like i said in my head i think that would create the illusion of a horizon but right but I, you know i don't know i've never lived in a hollow earth i'm, I'm thinking it would be similar to like looking up like standing at like the base of a very tall mountain or something and, and trying to see the top, but it's so tall and it goes into like clouds and mist and everything that you just can't, you can't see that eventually it just fades from your view because you can't see that high up. I, I think it'd be that sort of a thing. Right. That makes sense. I guess. That's, that makes sense. So he goes on a walk. He goes on a walk about, says there's plenty of food. Uh, it's like the garden of Eden. And then he hears Tara fighting with the the dinosaur. Now, what do you what do you think of the way Tara is here? Oh, I I think she's a babe. Yeah, <laughs> I like her a lot. I, I it's funny because I didn't notice until just this moment, but the the outfit that she's wearing on the cover is not the same outfit she's wearing internally, and this outfit she's wearing on the cover actually. I'm thinking is the, is the same or incredibly close to the costume worn by another female character that comes into the series later and is like his companion. See, I think the costume um, is the same drawing, but on the cover it's much darker. I think it's the coloring that just changes it. Maybe. Maybe I, I'm trying. I'm blanking on the name of the other character, but there's another female character that comes into the series in, in just a very short time, and is like his traveling companion. She's actually she's like that woman in the episode Cat's Paw of Star Trek that can turn into a. I think it's that one, right? No, I'm sorry. It's the one with uh, with Gary Seven, the woman that can turn into mm -hmm. a cat. Yes. He ha he has this this female companion who's dressed in an outfit like the one that Tara's got on the cover where it's all like black fur, but it's like a black fur bikini type of thing. Right. And she can actually turn into a cat. And so I, you know, it's, that's very much her look, the one on the cover. So I'm looking at it as, as like it's fur, but maybe you're right. Maybe it's just darkly colored, but that other character does actually wear like a fur bikini essentially. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's what I wear when I'm walking around the house myself. So, <laughs> who am I to judge? But yeah, I like Tara's outfit much better on the on the interior. She looks very in that very first panel. She looks very Red Sonia-ish. Yes, yes, she does. So, he jumps into the fray, and amazing, you know, his his uh, uniform gets tattered in in William Shatner like fashion. Just, just it, it, the, the, by the time the fight's done, he's down to like a pair of shorts. I actually had to, I got to the end of the story and ended up having to flip back to find, I was like, or maybe it wasn't the end of the story, but it was at some point I noticed that, oh, I, it was when they take him to the bath, um, like the last panel before he goes into the bath, he's wearing like, like hot pants, you know, like, like cut off jean shorts. Yeah. 
And I'm like, wait, when the hell did he wind up in just shorts? So I had to flip back and yeah, he goes from the full Air Force uniform down to those shorts in like three panels. It's like, like, he gets just shredded by that dinosaur. It's like the dinosaur was like, you know, one of these like sex shows where the women are tearing each other's clothes off. <laughs> like like the dinosaur was more intent on tearing his clothes than actually battling him. <laughs> but but anyway, not that I have any experience with anything like that. That's my disclaimer. <laughs> So then they encounter this army, uh, and and uh, what is it on page? I don't even know what number it is. Uh, looks like it's page ten, I think. Page ten, where he's where he's shooting the yes. the centurion. When he, when he shoots yeah. the, and the centurion is like, uh, he's flying backwards after he gets hit. Doesn't he look like Molderam from uh, the Temple of Doom? <laughs> Yes, he does. Yeah, yeah, he does. And you know he wasn't influenced by the ten- Temple of Doom because this is almost this is about ten years before it. Right. So, but it's just you know that's that's the look he has to me. Uh, so he gets involved in the battle, but then you know then he says one bullet left, and all I could think was Bugs Bunny. Hey, Waffing Boy, one bullet left. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but it, it's it's enough the you know using the gun, uh, you know it's enough to uh, to have them bring him to their leader, and I'm understanding that the leader, the king, who's being influenced by this character Demos, is not long for this uh, series. I, I wish I could remember. I, I don't I don't recall where this whole thing with. Now, now, Demos, spoiler, Demos becomes like the default, but he he's like the the Vader or the or the Baron Karza of this series, at least in the very beginning. Um, and he's, uh, you know, he and Warlord go several rounds. At one point, Demos even gets killed and comes back. So he was like the bad guy of the series. Um, the Theron King, I can't remember. What Actually, the goes on, on, on the him. Wikipedia page, on the uh, wiki page for DC. Uh, it says King Baldor single appearance. So this is it. Ah, okay. We're not going to see much go. more of him. Looks a little bit like Harry Mudd with, yeah, with red does. hair. Uh, he probably died of some complications due to the fact that he's sitting on a friggin' rock all day long. That's got to be the most uncomfortable throne in the world. He's got the piles. It's just solid marble. He must buy his Lazy Boys the same place Shazam does. <laughs> so... The uh, Demos decides to test him with this mind rock, and in my mind, I'm picturing when the uh, the mutants are attacking uh, Brent and uh, and Taylor in uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Right. With their mind powers, I'm hearing that high pitched squeal, and uh, and then he he he's a hell of a shot because he actually shoots this 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 orb <laughs> out of Demos's hand. See, I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking Crystal Skull and that like sound that they play in the in the background while it's mm. messing with his mind. Hey, that works too. <laughs> Somebody, please, for the love of God, get Demos a pair of pants. <laughs> what is that outfit? It's, it's uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, War- Warlord decides to compete with him with his outfit, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's it's like they're all dressing like Zardoz. 
Yeah, I mean, now granted, this original outfit for uh, for Warlord, I really don't like it. It's yeah, it's not a good look. But I mean, Demos literally looks like he stole. Um, Oh God! What was Scott Summers' wife's name that became the Goblin Queen? Madeline Pryor. Madeline Pryor. It looks like he's wearing Madeline Pryor's clothes, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that, but you. Now I can't unsee it. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so after he does that, I guess the king is impressed enough at the use of his last bullet, and some maidens come over and they bathe him and give him his Zardoz outfit. And you can see Demos is glaring back at them. And then he wakes up with a, a long hair and a full beard and decides to trim himself down to an Oliver, Oliver uh, Queen, Queen uh, goatee. I do wonder about that. I've, I've tried to find, I've read, like I say, I've read a lot of interviews with him and everything. I don't know that he ever addressed why he specifically makes him look like Green Arrow. I, I really don't know what the what the deal well, is. At what with point that. did did Oliver Queen grow the uh, the goatee? Did he have it yet at this point? It was uh, Raven the Bold number eighty six is the first time he appeared in that like like the Robin Hood looking outfit. So I'm assuming that's when he got the goatee and all, all that. It was it was a Neil Adams makeover. Mm-hmm. So he had another connection uh, between Mike Grell and Neil Adams. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But whether that's the first time he had the the beard, you know, the goatee and all that, I'm not sure. But that's the first time he wore the outfit that everybody associates with the goatee and all that. I, I'm assuming it is, but I just don't I don't know enough about Green Arrow to know that for sure. So uh, at this point, you know, some time has gone by and it, it they do say that he speaks Russian uh, and he's in getting the mastery of another language isn't a problem for him. So now he, you know, he over however much time passes, he's able to uh, converse with Tara in, in the same language. And she says she comes from her home world of Shambhala, which I believe there is a three dog night song called that. <laughs> I think it's called like the road to Shambhala, something along those lines. So that word probably has some meaning beyond what I know. Right. just comes right out with his hollow earth theory i mean he picked this up very very quickly she tells him he's now, crazy i can't remember 
where it comes into play, and maybe I'm just maybe I'm projecting something from Justice League Unlimited, but I think this does change eventually in in the I think to where it's not actually the inner earth that he actually went through some sort of like dimensional rift That's, or some shit that, like that. I saw that on the uh, wiki on the uh, DC database page. It says uh, although in this issue Skataris is described as in the core of the earth, 10 years later the crisis on infinite earths will retcon it to being in another dimension. Ah, uh, there you go. I I suspect the reason that they did that is because at least starting out, um, Warlord seemed to be taking place in its own continuity and its in its own thing. So it wasn't part of the DC universe, at least initially starting out. And it it, it never really interacted a whole lot with the DC universe. That that came much later down the road, um, but I think, as you say, with Crisis, um, they did eventually kind of integrate it into that world, and eventually he would both come out of Scartaris, and uh, like like he met Oliver Queen at one point. It was a book we looked at. Oh yeah, and uh, and some people from the outer world actually went to Scartaris. Um, like I think the Titans went there and, and some other characters. So there was a little bit of, you know, crossover here and there, but I gotta say overall, I, I think this functions much better in its own world. Um, because that was my first thought when I got to this page was, wait, if this is true and he's accurate in his theory, wouldn't somebody like Superman know this? Mm. because he has you know, x-ray vision and he's been all over the place and you would think he would realize that the, that the earth is hollow, you know? So yeah, I guess the, the dimensional thing. Oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, he, you know, uh, so I think that was all, you know, done to, to kind of explain, um, you know, how both could exist, but I don't know in that, in that instance, I think it works better in its own world. And I'm kind of confused why they would want to combine them anyway, because I'm, Unless I'm wrong, I mean, like I say, I haven't read, you know, but but just maybe the first like third of the series, so I'm nowhere near the crisis yet or anything. But I think that when there's a there's a couple issues with uh, with the monitor pre-crisis monitor appearances of the monitor watching the warlord, and those may be the first inkling of this series being set in, you know, the actual DC universe where he could potentially interact with the other characters. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that being the case, you know, I, I wonder why they would go to all that trouble because he is one of the ones that was conspicuously absent from the crisis. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that had had an actual ongoing series during the crisis, yet was what did not interact in the because I'm almost positive. I, I'd have to you know really pour through the issues to, to be absolutely sure or, or look at the uh, the indexes. But I'm almost positive that Travis Morgan is not in the crisis at all. He like I say, there was a couple of those pre-crisis monitor appearances, but he himself is kind of cons conspicuously absent 
for somebody that had an ongoing title concurrently while the crisis was going on and supposedly in the same universe. Because there was lots of other titles that were happening during the crisis that didn't tie in, but they weren't part of the world, like uh, like Atari Force and you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I think those by but their this, very nature wouldn't interact. Yeah, exactly. But this is supposed to be in that world, yet he's not there. So it just, it's kind of confusing to me. It's like you're already playing with it as if it's a detached thing, so why would you integrate it and then mess up your own internal logics i don't know it doesn't make a lot of sense to me but by making it another dimension it makes it easy for them to do the occasional crossover which i guess was their goal uh but not necessarily have it be interacting all the time right so i think you know that that kind of works for me In, in my mind and again i hadn't really had much familiarity uh, until I saw it on uh, Justice League Unlimited when they went to this, and I think they presented it as, uh, you know, the Hollow Earth theory and that. Uh, but until they they appeared in there, I always thought this took place like on a different timeline, that you know this was like something well, in the right. past or something, you know. Right. Right. So, but you know, again, my I I had precious little exposure to this. Uh, so anyway, uh, after Warlord, and he's not even called Warlord in this, Travis and Tara are having the conversation. There's a, uh, uh, I guess a serving wench who goes over to Demos to tell them what he's, what they said. And he rewards her by giving her a drink that turns her into a serpent. What an asshole. <laughs> really? <laughs> so, but he takes the information and he uses that to send some, uh, some hired killers over to take them out. And I think we see three of them. And as soon as they come in, Travis is kind of waiting for them. And I'm not sure exactly, you know, what clued him in to expect it, but he, he takes out one Tara picks up a sword and slashes the throat of another. And then Warlord takes out the, the, the third one also with a slash to the throat. At which point they decide they're going to go uh, to uh, what's this, Shambhala. And uh, it ends with next first, oh, no, not next first issue of special, excuse me. Uh, beneath, the un, was it, beneath the unblinking orb of the eternal noon, Travis Morgan, late of a world called Earth, and Tara, a warrior woman of Skataris, steal from the city of Thera and are swallowed by the jungle bound for a distant, far distant land Bound for Adventure, The Beginning. And then on the next page, they tell us that Warlord Number 1 is coming out in two months. And they have a very cool article about Mike Grell, uh, just, you know, basically giving... Uh, actually, it's it's a uh, kind of Mike Grell's autobiography in one page, along with a caricature of him in the Warlord outfit. And I guess about this time when he did this, he would have been... He would have been like 28 years old, I think. So yeah. he was a relatively young guy, uh, and uh, you know he's he's kind of uh, self uh, self deprecating, denigrating, self deprecating in in, yeah. in the way he talks about himself and all. Uh, which hey, you got to appreciate a guy who doesn't, you know, put himself above everybody else. Which is kind of what the conversation we had before when we were talking about him. 
so, uh, but it, you know, just reading through this has definitely whet my appetite to read more. Even though I'm not seriously a sword and sorcery guy, and and every once in a while I, I, I divert off of that because uh, we just did an issue recently where I did uh, with Al Sedano, we did an episode, and I did a uh, Sword of the Atom which is putting Ray Palmer right. into a similar situation. How was that? Uh, I had read the miniseries, the first miniseries, which I think was four issues when it first came out. Uh, and I remember liking it a good deal. Uh, and then we just did the first issue of that series uh, for, for the show, uh, which is the first time I read it since it first came out. And uh, I still enjoyed it. I still think it was really was good. Was that Kane on that? Yeah, Gil Kane. Yeah. I read when he came out of that world and he had his uh, Power of the Atom series by Roger Stern. I read that and I liked that quite a bit. And it referred to things that had happened during Sword of the Atom that I thought sounded really intriguing. But I, I never have read any of that. Yeah, again, it's, you know, it, it is kind of it, it is similar to this. If you like this, you'd probably like that. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to become all of a sudden a big sword and sorcery buff. But, you know, the occasional venture into there is, is clearly not beyond me. Right, right. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. I mean, I I don't have anything against it. It's just not, you know, my, my native genre. It's not something I'm terribly comfortable with. And, and it's nothing I, I really ever had that much interest in. But I tell you, whatever I've read of it in recent years um, has intrigued me. I mean, I read almost everything that Dynamite put out on Red Sonia and really enjoyed, you know, like 99.9% of it I thought was fantastic. Yeah, I remember you um, talking about that when you were doing that read. Yeah, it was really good. Um, I've dabbled recently a bit in uh, in Conan, you know, mostly Savage Sword, the black and white magazine, mm -hmm. and it's not great, but it's 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 interesting, and I mean the art is almost invariably awesome. Is it you know, they got John Buscema. Yeah, John Buscema, Neil Adams. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the other guys, uh, uh, Val Merrick. Oh wow! So yeah, that's yeah, that's so still, you know, just those guys alone is worth the price yeah. of admission. Yeah, it's it's some really good stuff, and and of course this I I've, I've you know like I say what I've read of this so far I really like because I don't want to spoil anything but there there's a development <clears throat> in the series between uh, Morgan and Tara and what happens with them and and their relationship and things that that uh, develop down the road that was kind of a hook for me so when I when I started reading this as part of my my crisis read through. It had already gotten to that point where, where something something tragic happens to them, um, and we the readers are cued into okay. There's there's a part of this that that Travis doesn't know, and you keep waiting for him to find out that that the thing that he thinks he's lost he he hasn't really lost. It's right within his reach. He just doesn't realize it. Type of thing, and so that was kind of the hook for me. And that was why I wanted to go back and, and like see the story from the beginning. Like, how did this develop? How did these things happen? How did we get to this point type of thing? So, I mean, it, it is interesting. Um, it, it gets, you know, because this first issue is, I'll, I'll be honest, I feel like this first issue is okay. It, it's decent setup and all for, like, who are the characters? How did he wind up in this world? I didn't think it was great. 
Um, and the first few issues of it are a little bit rough story-wise, but once it kind of starts finding its feet, um, I, I felt like it really started to develop well. And especially when more of the um, like more permanent characters come in, because there's uh, some other really interesting supporting characters in the series that just aren't present yet in, in this first chapter of it. Well, this, and some of those characters are really interesting. This chapter almost reads as a prologue, which, which kind of makes yeah. it fit with the fact that it's not actually the series proper yet. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like one of those preview books before preview books were a thing type of thing. Yeah. But yeah. it's still yeah, a full yeah, issue unto itself, which is kind of cool. I, I, you know, I, yeah. I, I wonder if you're, you know, obviously you're not saying this is bad, but you, I wonder if your opinion isn't uh, slightly influenced by the fact that you know where it goes and you kind of like that better and you think it's going to get even better than it is. And in comparison, you're kind of bringing this down a little bit because you like the other stuff better. Because uh, I'm doing this well, in a that, vacuum with just this it. issue. And just this issue alone, like I said, again, in a vacuum, I'm re I really enjoyed it. No, I, I, that, I, that's definitely part of it, I, I suspect, as well as, like you say, yeah, I, I know where it goes. And I, I know that, you know, it, it gets for me personally, it gets much more interesting than this first issue. Um, but obviously, there's got to be something here because, you know, like I say, it, it kept me going, you know, going back to this and, and reading this, um, you know, at the beginning where I didn't necessarily start. It wasn't like. I went back to this and was like, ugh, I, ugh, this, you know, this thinks I'm just going to go back to where I started from type of thing. It's like, no, I, I was intrigued and kept going. But, um, yeah, it's, it, it's one of those things where I, I just feel like, um, the writing's a little clunky. Um, it's a little derivative because I, I, I feel like it's pulling in a lot of elements from, from other things, um, to kind of shore itself up. And I got to be honest, while I really love the art, because, I mean, this is one of my favorite artists, I feel like the art in this um, is a little inconsistent. Most of it's fantastic, but there are a few instances of it where I thought, ooh, that just looks off somehow. And that's why I, I kind of sought out the timeline of Mike Grell to see, like, where does this fall? Right. And I was a little surprised to see where it does fall because... I was thinking, oh, this must be really, really early in his career. Um, but looking at some of the other things that were, you know, contemporaneous with what he was doing at the time or, or that he had done prior to this, it's like, I don't know. I, I, I think some of his Legion stuff that he was doing right around the same time actually would be a better representation of, of uh, how he he had developed as an artist than some of the the pages and panels in this i was just a little surprised by that I, I wrote up a little thing here real quick if we have time sure it was uh so Grell, he'd been around for a year and a half at this point uh he had done 11 issues of superboy um that was kind of the regular title that he was on but then in addition to that he had several other like short stints and uh like one-off uh stories and such but he had done um, adventure comics where he did a couple of uh, Aquaman backups. And he actually did a seven soldiers of victory story as well. Uh, he did an issue with a phantom stranger and he worked on backups featuring um, the Adam, which was, uh, I think that was just a one-off, I think. 
And then another character, of course, they become very closely identified with later Green Arrow. Uh, and that was in Action Comics. Uh, he did that one story in Detective that I talked about. It was called, oh, The Touchdown Trap. That was the name of the story. It was in uh, Detective Comics 445. And then, uh, i trying to remember, were you on the episode where we did that, uh, the first story in Batman Family number one, where uh, Benedict Arnold came back from yes, hell? Yes, Yeah, yeah, he did that, that one as well. Um, the same month as this came out, he would start doing Green Lantern backups in The Flash. And that eventually led to Green Lantern regaining his title uh, where they resumed the original numbering. I think that was issue 90, 89 or 90. And Grell was the artist on that uh, when that first came back as well. So you know, this, you know, he'd done a lot of stuff by this point and you know some really good stuff so some of the some of the wonkiness in this was a little bit surprising to me because i I felt like he'd worked out a lot of those early kinks because some of the very earliest issues of like superboy um i mean they're beautiful and all but they're 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 rough some of them are kind of you know very amateurish um you know in retrospect and I see just a little bit of that in some of the panels in this but overall i really like it a lot um, I was surprised looking at his body of stuff, you know, especially in the early days. Um, he was tr- traditionally his own inker, and I don't think I ever really realized that before. Uh, see, I, I don't think I, I don't think the work here is all that rough. I, I, I'm thinking for the most part, I really like what he did here. I do think there's maybe a little bit of a learning curve on the whole sword and sorcery thing because none of his prior stuff seems to have gone that avenue uh, right but you know especially i, I commented when we first ter- started the the pages which you know show him you know actually in his plane in flight and this you know close-up of his eyes and then there's him you know, actually you know working the equipment and then there's the, the plane you know maneuvering and different angles and different things that are going on where i feel the art is really beautiful for that sequence yeah no, I'll agree with you on that. Yeah, that stuff, the beginning stuff in, this, in the beginning of the story, I think it's fantastic. Maybe maybe that's what it is. Maybe it hit the nail on the head. It's that once he's got to a point where he doesn't necessarily have reference, you know, because it's all taking place in this fantastical world, maybe that lends to a little bit of the that thing that's, you know, that seems a bit wonky for me. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, and, and there's, there's always the, uh, you know, the wonkiness that comes with the styles of the day, you know, Warlord's costume. It's yeah. like, you know, it's it's a little cringeworthy every time you see it. But, you know, you got to deal. And maybe that's what it is, too, because the page I'm specifically looking at where I think, yeah, I just I think that looks wonky is page 13 where he stands revealed in his outfit for the first time. Yeah, it's just. Maybe it's the look more than the art, but yeah, just <laughs> it's not a good look. Yeah. And then again, Emo's just looks—he just looks silly. Yeah, I can't can't disagree. Although, you know, he, he definitely makes Demos look very sinister throughout, which I like that. You know, don't don't hide it. He's a villain, and you know it just by looking at him. But uh, I, he, I, he's I got a great look. He he looks. I'm sorry. I was gonna say I, I just generally enjoyed this issue. More than I anticipated, put it that way. 
I would definitely encourage you to to go beyond this. You know, keep reading because uh, it, it is it's it's good stuff. I've I've enjoyed it. I need to get back to it. And and actually, my obtaining this issue was more in line with the fact that I had a few issues of first issue special, and I wanted to you know that's one of the series that's on my want list to complete. So, you know, when I saw this at a reasonable price, I figured let me jump all over it because, you know, I could see where they charge a lot for this in certain areas. I've got one up for sale right now on Facebook. It's um, the Metamorpho issue, but it's it's whipped. I mean, it's in rough shape. Okay. Well, if it's whipped, it's not for me. Uh, but I've had a I've had a few of those over the. I'm trying to remember which other ones. Um, oh, the Doctor Fate one with the Cuber cover. It's uh, it's Simonson on the inside, but it's got a Cuber cover. Where he's fighting like a Sphinx or something. I've had that since I was. I have little. I have the Metamorpho issue. I'm just looking now on my app. Uh, I do not have the Doctor Fate issue. I have eight and eight is this one. I have nine. That's the Doctor Fate. I have twelve, which is the Blue Starman. I have that. Which is cool because he actually was brought back into Starman uh, in the '90s in the um, what's his name series. Um, James Robinson. My my currently my current want issue want list issues on this are issues two, four, nine, and eleven, which are the Green Team, Lady Cop, <laughs> Doctor Fate, and Assassin, or Codename Assassin. Excuse me. I'm thinking none of those should be beyond a $2 bin. I was just going to say, with the exception of Dr. Fate, I've seen all three of those other three in the cheap bins and recently, too. I wish I'd known that you needed them. Even Dr. Fate, I'm not sure that that should be in a high price. It might be only because um, I'm trying to remember. There's something historical about that one. I can't remember. It was like the first... Bronze Age, Doctor, something like it, it has some distinction. I can't remember what it is now, but uh, um, well, it says here, yeah, key first appearance origin. Now that's maybe it's because it's it, maybe it's the first origin of Doctor. I don't know. Maybe, but, maybe. Yeah, I still don't. I still don't see it. It's it, it's it's a minor key. <laughs> I don't see it as as a significant. Plus, uh, you know, again, I'll look for I'm in the cheap bins. Sure. I'm pretty sure that's reprinted in. Uh, there was a really nice. Uh, it was one of those like b- before they started calling them prestige format reprints. One of those nice prestige format reprints that they did in the 80s. Um, there was a Doctor Fate, like I think it was four issues. Most of it's the Keith Giffen backup stuff, but I think one of the issues has... The, you know what? Let me look that up. I'm almost positive of this. Because I think that's where I first... Re- yeah, Immortal Doctor Fate. It was 1985. Yeah, if you look at the at the first issue, it's got a Walt Simonson cover on it. Yeah, it's it's reprinted in there. But I think that series as a whole reprinted it was three issues it reprints i think the rest of them are all keith giffen i guess something i don't know i'm looking here trying to figure out oh okay so the first issue reprints 
DC special, the Dr. Fate uh, story from DC special series number 10 by Joe Staten and Mike Netzer. That's some damn pretty stuff right there. Mm. And then a golden age story. And then first issue special number nine. So is it the other two issues that are all the backup? Yeah, the other two issues are all the backups by Keith Giffen that appeared in The Flash. That used to price high, but being a reprint book, I would think that would be pretty common and not that expensive these days. But yeah, I, I'm trying to remember. There was some deal with that, but of course this is going way back to you know the 80s and 90s, but there was some deal with that uh with that Dr. Fate appearance that it was it priced high at one time. I don't know if it still does, but it used to. Well, I'm not paying high for it. <laughs> it's as simple as that. I either find it at a decent price or I don't find it at all. Right. So we'll see. I, I would imagine at some point I will, but it's not, you know, it's not like uh, if I don't find it immediately, I'm going to have a problem. When it, when it, when it, when I come across it, I come across it. I really wanted to make a stop at the comic store today, and I was not able to because, unfortunately, I had to do work. Damn you, Joe! There was a there was a first issue specials hardcover reprint in 2020 that reprinted all of them. I had no idea. I don't want that. That's either. pretty. I cool. don't want that. I want my individual issues. <laughs> Oh, it just—it looks nice, though. It's, I had no idea they reprinted all those. Did you ever? You ever uh, have you ever watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Oh God! One time as a kid, and I did not get it. I didn't. Okay. I think I was too young for there's it or this, something. There's the character in there, and he's like, "I don't want that. I want my cigarettes." I mean, <laughs> so it's like, I don't want the hardcover. <laughs> I want the individual issues. I'm turning into him now. That is Honeywell's favorite movie, and he made me watch it when we were kids, and it, I think it just went right over my head or something because I, I remember just being bored. <laughs> well, I could see as a, I, I as a kid where it might wear you out a little. But it's it's actually a great movie, uh, in my opinion. Uh, so if, if you get a chance to rewatch it, I would suggest you do. I need to. I need to because I, I, think, I think now I would probably really enjoy it, but I, just, I remember not not getting what what the appeal was back then yeah, well that could be because you were a kid <laughs> anyway uh do you want to rate this before we sign off yeah let's do that all right so i think i'm slightly higher on the cover than you are but i'm not at the point of saying it's you know iconic uh i i'd say it's you know it's a solid b cover uh, it's a it's a pretty compelling image as far as I'm concerned. It's good action, good coloring. Uh, you know, it's a solid B. Uh, the interior art, I think, is, I'll agree with you, it's not Mike Grell's absolute best, but I think it's still pretty solid. I think that the weaknesses that I'm seeing that I think you might be latching onto is just kind of some of the background shots, uh, the perspectives and everything. But but as far as the the individual people, uh, except for the costuming, I think it's pretty solid. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say a B on the interior art as well. Um, story wise, I found it engaging and it makes me want to read more. So I'm gonna say a B plus on that. And I'm gonna over give it overall a, a solid B. 
Cool. Uh, I like the cover. Um, I do think it's pretty solid. Really, my only real quibble with the cover is Tara. She just looks horribly out of proportion. And I think it's just I think it's simply a perspective issue. I, I think it's due to the, the coloring and, and that sort of thing. Um, this is one of those things where I, I think like an art editor or something should have caught this and been like, all right, you're going to have to tweak that. Maybe move, you know, move her figure a little bit, you know, uh, you know, have her face a slightly different direction or so- something. But just as it looks right now, it just, it just really looks odd. And that's the thing that throws me off. But otherwise it's great. I mean, if it was just Morgan and the dinosaur fighting on this cover, I mean, it's fantastic. I love the shading on the dinosaur and, and how the color is uh, shaded. And it just looks really, really nice. It's uh, actually quite beautiful for the, the printing process of the day in a way that you, you often didn't see. So I, I'd like that a lot. Um, so yeah, as a, as a cover, I'm going to say a solid B on the cover. Um, yeah, it's it's really just that figure of Terra that throws it off for me. The interior art I like a lot. It's just simply not the best uh, Mike Grell I've ever seen. And part of that, uh, again, maybe because I know he gets much better than this. And also this this just, you know, it's not really my genre. So there's there's those things working against it. I'm going to say uh, a B minus on the art because I, I do know that it gets much better than this. And, and I like, you know, where that goes and everything. Um, but I do like I like the colors uh, quite a bit mm-hmm. on the interior. I th- I'm wondering if he did the coloring on it as well, because I think that there's a really good job on the colors. Um Story wise, I mean, it, it's a solid issue. Um, you know, it fills in everything you need to know to kind of, you know, set the table and get the story rolling and all that. So, yeah, it's fine. Um, I'll say, a, I'll say, a, I'll say a solid A on the story. I didn't really have any any faults with the story at all. Um, it moves right along. It sets everything up, and uh, it intrigues you enough to to want to see, okay, where does this go from here? So, uh, overall, great on it. Um, Say a B overall. I, I think it's a solid B book. Yeah, so we, we ended stuff. up we, we wound up in pretty much the same place. Yeah. So uh, I guess that'll do it for today. And thank you everybody for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. You're not going to say goodbye? You don't want to tell the listeners goodbye? You don't don't miss them? You don't love (laughs) them? (laughs) All right.